In 2015, Guai and Jolin Edenshaw made the 7,522-kilometer long journey all the way from Haida Gwaii to Oxford. They were there for a very special purpose, to spend a month furiously working to recreate, to the most precise detail possible, a magnificent Haida Bentwood box. It's a piece that had been held at the Pitt Rivers Museum since it opened in 1884. But we have no record of how it came to be all the way in England. We stumbled across what has come to be known as the Great Box. And, um, you know, it it was just uh, something that uh, blew our minds at the time. But why were Jolin and Gwai recreating the box in the first place? Why was having the original Bentwood box returned to Haida Gwai not an option? This episode is about the relationship museums have to truth and about the way they tell the story of our history, the facts they obscure, and the truths they are sometimes unwilling to confront. You know, really, it just shows that, you know, it's, it's what it is, is a, a sort of storehouse of colonial plunder. But it's also about how museums can be powerful sites of truth-telling, and how two museums on opposite sides of the world are grappling with the complicated situations they have inherited. Today, we're going to look at the Great Box Project, listening to Gwai and Jolin talk about their experiences working on this extraordinary project. The child of the Great Box is is an example of us repopulating our world with Haida art. And discuss with Marenka Thompson-Odlum at the Pitt Rivers Museum her work in trying to bring more collaboration and honesty to the museum's interpretation. The fact that so many of our, so much of our collections is rooted in kind of colonial enterprise. It can never just be glossed over. And finally to Haida Gwai to speak with Nika Collison about how the Haida Gwai Museum is doing things differently. Our museum is fully part of our culture and our ability to heal, to seek and and attain reparation and to find ways to coexist. Welcome to Tapwewin, talking about what we know and what we believe, a podcast from the territories of the Lekwungen peoples and the libraries and archives of the University of Victoria. We talked to Gwai and Jolin on a rainy Wednesday in February. Out here is not the best, so apologize for that. Especially when it's uh, sprinkling as it is, sort of seems to. Gwai and Jolin are brothers, and although Gwai is a little older, they look like they could be twins. So maybe can we start? Just can you introduce yourselves, please? Sure. I'm uh, Gwai Edenshaw. My name is Jolin. Uh, we're out at our carving shed right now in uh, Masset. Haida Gwai. Both are Haida. Both are expert carvers and artists. And they've worked together on a multitude of projects in a variety of media. Everything from totem poles to stop motion animation. One of their recent projects was Edge of the Knife, the first feature film that is entirely in Haida. So we're up on uh, the north end of Haida Gwai in a uh, little uh, reserve um, old name for it is Kutoas, and uh, this is where I got my carving shed. Haida Gwai, if 
people don't know is something like 500 miles north of Vancouver and a six to eight hour ferry ride straight out into the Pacific. Um, when we look at the mainland, what we actually see is the Alaska Panhandle, only on a clear day though. The brothers visited Oxford in 2009 alongside the other members of the Haida delegation to Britain. While at the Pitt Rivers, they had the chance to handle and spend time with a number of Haida belongings. We went and got to spend a lot, lot of time with the Haida collections over there. And in the process, that was uh, the main reason was to get the uh, Haida human remains home. We also were able to create quite a good relationship with the museum. One particular object caught the eye of the two carvers. In that examination of pieces, we stumbled across uh, what has come to be known as the Great Box. And um, it was just uh, something that uh, blew our minds at the time. You know, it is an amazing piece of, of form line art. We commented, you know, the only way for us to really understand what this artist was was up to would be to do a recreation of that box. You talked about the box and a Bentwood box being a box of treasures. I'm wondering if you could just maybe share a bit about what a Bentwood box is in Haida culture. It's sort of all kinds of things. You know, it's a, a utility device. We used it for cooking and for storage. It was used for, you know, inside of ceremonies to house sacred objects. It was used within our burial practices. You know, what makes a bentwood box is the corners are, are curved in a specific way and then it's steamed so the sides are all one piece. This Bentwood box is one of the very small percentage of the Pitt River's overall collection that is actually on display. About a meter long, all four sides of the box feature depictions of the supernatural being Kuganjad or Mouse Woman, alongside other creatures and supernatural beings. The designs are painted in red and black together with a luminescent turquoise. The design work is complex and multi-layered, and the more you look, the more you begin to see. But why was the box all the way in Oxford to begin with? How did this remarkable Bentwood box end up thousands of kilometers away from its home on Haida Gwaii? I mean, the University of Oxford played an absolutely essential role in supporting British imperialism. To give us some context on the Pitt Rivers Museum, I spoke with our producer, Karina, who studied art history at Oxford and who also spent a lot of time right inside the Pitt Rivers. The university itself was a really fertile ground for legitimizing a lot of the ideas behind colonialism. And those ideas were then taught to its students who went out to become a lot of the really high-ranking positions in the British Empire. So everyone from prime ministers and viceroys to colonial administrators and teachers and missionaries, everyone being fed these ideas of British superiority. And beyond playing a really important role in educating students, the Pitt Rivers Museum collection was expanded by those university graduates 
who would send things back to the Pitt Rivers from the places in the British colonies that they were stationed, um, a lot of things that were often acquired under less than legitimate or ethical conditions. So the museum has pretty rightly been described as this kind of like time capsule of colonial collecting and theft that was happening during the British Empire, and it has a lot of work to do to address that history. Hello, my name is Marenka Thompson-Odlem, and I am a curator and researcher at the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford. I work specifically on the Labeling Matters project, and I'm also a doctoral candidate at the University of Glasgow. Marenka has been working at the Pitt Rivers since 2019 on a project rethinking the museum's approach to labeling. We talked to her to try and get a better understanding of this complicated work. So the Pitt Rivers Museum, um, as I said, is a university museum, and it houses over 500,000 objects, photos, manuscripts, and archives. Um, Many of these were collected during the height of the British Empire. So from the beginning of the founding of the museum in the 1880s um, till around the 1970s, that's when the most of the collecting was being done. And if you map those collections kind of onto the former British Empire, the largest parts of our collections come from all those places. The 1880s in Canada were a particularly violent time where the Canadian settler state massively intensified its colonial efforts and violence against Indigenous peoples. To name but only a few events, this decade saw the first use of the Gatling gun to suppress the Métis resistance at Batoche, the growth of the residential school system, the construction of the Canadian Railway, the expansion of the national parks, and amendments to the Indian Act, treaty-making, and smallpox raging all along the West Coast. When we talk about different levels of violence, um, one thing that always stands out to me in the um, Benin Bronze's case in the museum is that you can actually see that violence on the objects. There is this beautifully carved um, elephant tusk uh, that would have been on what would have been an altar originally. And you can see where it's been broken off But also during the um, punitive expedition in 1897, a lot of the city was burnt and razed. And you can see the scorch marks all along one side of that carved tusk. So you can literally see like, you know, violence enacted on those objects. So then take that a step further and you can think of the violence enacted on the people who, you know, who created the the makers of those objects, um, the communities where it came from, um, from Benin City. But the violence of collecting is not always this visible upon the objects themselves. One of the first things you see when you walk into the Pitt Rivers Museum is the um, Starhouse pole, uh, a Haida pole from Masset Island. And what is really um, kind of interesting to me about that one is on the label, it says that it was purchased for 36 pounds in around 1900, right? 36 pounds. When you think of this, you know, beautifully carved, massive, like, pole, um, and then you read that it costs about the same amount to pay people to basically transport it from where it was down to the uh, shore to be put on a ship. And then it costs about 200 pounds to then put it on a railway all across Canada and then be shipped over to London and then put on a train to get to Oxford. So basically, all that, like it costs more to do all that than was paid um, to the community. But more important than just the price is that 
when you look at the time that it's collected in, you realize that this is um, an area where, you know, the Haida community is basically facing a smallpox, you know, pandemic. So they're losing a lot of their population. So people with that knowledge of um, carving and how to and how to read those poles and, you know, all this cultural knowledge, you're also facing influx of missionaries saying, you know, that the poles and different practices, Haida practices are, you know, um, not Christian or they're satanic. So there's this also this push, you know, this other form of colonization happening. Pitt River's curator Laura Pierce has pointed out that in 1884, the same year the Great Box is being transferred to Oxford, the Canadian government amended the Indian Act to include the potlatch ban. This new legislation criminalized a number of important cultural traditions and many of the belongings confiscated or sold under this ban ended up in scattered museum collections around the world. And so, you know, faced with all those kind of pressures, selling the poles at that time is a means of survival. So, you know, that's a different type of violence that's happening. You know, one where, you know, maybe some, you know, someone is not as brutal as the Benin um, example, but yeah, so that to me shows the different layers of what we're working with and sometimes how insidious, you know, colonization is. As sites that possess a great deal of power to shape our understanding of history, museums often fail to be honest about their colonial roots, something that becomes clear when looking at the labels in the pit rivers. We have some labels that are just really overtly offensive. So derogatory language, um, you know, that you would not use. So things like the word like savage or savages, you know, on some of the older labels. Um, So that's something that's still on some of our objects and on some of the labels where you just learn that people don't even know the meaning of that word here. And so they just kind of transcribe old labels onto new labels without even like thinking through And that causes, I mean, significant, significant trauma to people who come in who recognize what that term is. And then you have what I call the more euphemistic labels, that it's so much harder to see the issues of, you know, why they're problematic, because they're not exactly saying anything that's incorrect. They're just basically hiding an entire, like, history. I think, I mean, I've certainly even seen it appear a lot of times, even in the in the kind of the throwaway word of collected, right? Yes. Like this item was collected. And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. how was it collected? Who was yeah. it collected by? How much consent was involved in that like quote unquote collection? And I mean, it's. Yes, I mean, collected, presented, acquired. Then you have the ones that were donated, but who were they donated by? How did that person get it? Who, um, in quotation marks, collected um, these objects to what information is privileged on you know and reproduced on the labeling but yes i mean that is just very clear of who kind of the hierarchy that we're establishing you know who's given the greater importance even though it's an object a museum full of objects from all over the world it's only people from a very kind of mean in this sense mainly british but also eurocentric um communities that are given that kind of power Despite the Great Box being a part of the museum's founding donation, 
there's almost no associated information about how it came to be a part of the Pitt Rivers collection. Idea, you know, we knew it was a hide a box. We had an idea, maybe, maybe from Massett. But uh, as we start looking at all the field notes or different things from from the collectors, we realized how little was known and how poor the record keeping was. You know, at that time, it was more just a frenzy to collect, and the museums wanted to fill their stores, and you know, they weren't recording who owned it or or who carved it or even in most cases where it was collected. Collectors and museums at this time were ravenously trying to collect objects and belongings from Indigenous nations up and down the Pacific coast. Many belongings were sold to collectors. Some were simply stolen. Collectors were also not above robbing graves for objects or for ancestral remains. Literally, when you go into museums you know you go into their back rooms their storage and there's hundreds if not thousands of pieces that really nobody's ever going to see but um you know really it just shows that what it is is a, a sort of storehouse of colonial plunder right it's showing the power that they had at that time yeah, it's, all, it's always sort of this conflict in our hearts as we go into those places, you know, because we know what it represents, but also, you know, we allow ourselves to be filled with the wonder of, of what we're seeing. Even though we don't know the details of how the Great Box came to be in Oxford, doesn't mean we don't know the policies and ideas that created the conditions for it to be sold or stolen it also becomes increasingly difficult to argue anything obtained under the genocidal and destructive forces of colonialism was legitimately acquired. Even though it's clear that treasures like the Great Box should be returned to their homes, many museums are still unwilling to admit the uncomfortable truth of their origins and return these important pieces of cultural heritage. I always question how much a place like the Pit Rivers can actually be decolonized. Yeah. But sometimes I wonder, like, is there, by the fact that so many of, our, or so much of our collections is rooted in kind of colonial enterprise, that it's always going to be with us. That's something that always has to be discussed, right? It can never just be glossed over because while these objects do have a life before coming into the museum, um, that act of them being in the museum is often through a colonial process. And so that is something that I keep on questioning. And then it also is something that makes me wonder, why do I work here? Um, Because you're working in a place that, you know, I love museums, but I'm also very conscious of the fact that museums are colonial in their like very like definition. In her project at the Pitt Rivers, Labeling Matters, Marenka has been working for the past several years to try to more truthfully, and with greater care and respect, communicate knowledge about the objects, belongings, and their communities of origin to the museum's visitors. It sounds like you have got an absolutely enormous task that even once you get to the end of all 50,000 labels, you'll probably have to go back and... (laughs) re-examine them because these this, this is all evo- like it's all evolving it's all uh in process right and it's all relational one thing i always tell people i mean like, this doesn't end 
actually the like to me one of the key part parts of kind of decolonial work is the constant critiquing of your own work and asking of yourself that like kind of self-reflexive practice one of the things that I always get um even from colleagues is like why haven't you changed like all the labels yet um and I was like well first of all the labels are like literally the tip of the iceberg but also my main reason is like well if I rewrite all these labels I'm not any better you know, and so it's going to take time to kind of develop all those relationships to be able to think through some of the, the labels are more thoughtfully, especially, especially the ones that are deeply problematic. I suppose there's a place like Pitt Rivers that is unconsciously colonial. And then there's a Pitt Rivers Museum that is conscious and is alert to this. And that's that has the potential to be quite a powerful space, actually, if it's willing to engage in these hard conversations and to situate the work, the space, the objects in this broader history of what even gave rise to the Pit Rivers in the first place. Um, but that's almost how I see the Pit Rivers um, kind of role as a whole is using this extremely colonial space Um to yeah, to kind of help people kind of unpack coloniality. Because I think one of the things that we tend to always do is want to try to just jump to decolonization without actually fully understanding like how we live with coloniality every day to like little things that we say and don't even question it, you know, until you feel like, oh, why do I think that? Why did I say that? It's not about just kind of throwing away the museum's history, but it's actually actively learning from it and trying to help people elucidate the palimpsest of like coloniality that we're under that no one realizes and peel back all those like layers. What do you know about the artist that carved it and, and where this box came from? We've been doing uh, quite a bit of research on that. And, you know, we knew we were going to learn a lot, but we didn't know how much we were going to learn. And literally every single day there was a new revelation, you know, about the carving style or about a technique. Every day there was something new. And so by the time we were done, we still didn't feel like we had learned all that we could from this artist. And we knew that he would have had to have had other pieces out there. You know, he was just, he was just too good not to have had a series of work. And it, I mean, his signature in the art was distinct enough that we felt confident that if we seen other pieces by him, that we'd recognize it. The unmooring of Indigenous knowledges from pieces of cultural heritage is yet another result of colonial assimilation policies. But dedicated research provides one pathway to begin reconnecting that knowledge with these belongings. So we start looking and we start finding in books and uh, first in books and internet searches and then we'd sort of make a short list of pieces we thought might be his and then we start going out to uh, different museums. So in Ottawa or Washington, D.C. or New York and 
and actually examining the boxes. And once we were there, you could see almost immediately that it was his, you know, done by the same artist. We mentioned the Great Box Project to Inuk art historian Heather Igloliordi when we spoke to her for another episode. She was excited to hear about Jolin and Gwai's research. Oh, there's some some really interesting work happening in Canada right now at various institutions around how do we how do we even name and identify works by people that we don't that we can't identify. So like works from the historical record, cultural belongings going back. You know, do we call these ancestor works? Do we say that they're, you know, artists not yet identified? And so just because the museum doesn't have that knowledge doesn't mean that they are anonymous producers from a culture, but that they are actually, you know, this is someone's artistry. This is someone's life work that's in the collection. And how do we restore the dignity to that piece again? And how do we really acknowledge how important it is to the community when the institution um, did not, you know, at one point, didn't care who made it, you know, and it was a part of the, uh, just collecting it for uh, the sake of having something in a collection rather than really appreciating who the individual artist was. I think that's such exciting work um, that, you know, can be done through the bringing together collections worldwide. And it does point to all of those uh, fissures and mistakes and, and uh, disregard that, you know, we can we can get that information back. And that's really, really exciting to me to the possibility of recovering knowledge because it's there in the thing. You know, it is there in the belonging. The knowledge is all there in, in the visual artwork. And it's just for us to unlock that puzzle and uh, discover that and then, you know, return return that knowledge to the object. On the other side of the world, the other collaborator on the Great Box Project, the Haida Gwaii Museum, is doing some incredible work expanding what is possible within museums. I'll probably get, you know, a little emotional sometimes when I talk because it is just so part, it's inextricable. It is real life in our world. Our museum is fully part of our culture. Singait la, jiskang hanudi ki gaga. Nika Collison, Hanu, Diki, Gagayat, Hyderga, Kishki, Di Hyderga, Ati Scottishka, Di Kayath, Lanis, Jinaga. Hi, my name is Jiskung, uh, Nika Collison in English. I'm Haida and Scottish. I'm from the Kayath Lanis clan. Nika currently works as the executive director of the Haida Museum, but she's worked in many roles at the museum over the years in addition to her work on the Repatriation Committee. So Natalie McFarlane was our director, and she tricked me into working at the museum. And I got to work with Natalie, who was the ED of the museum, two-person staff at the time. And we hit it off, and I and I really enjoyed the work we did together. And she, like I said, she tricked me. She stole me away. She said, how about I offer you an internship for negative $10 an hour? And... <laughs> 
The Haida Gwaii Museum, as a Haida-led institution, is taking a unique approach to its work. So within South Linda and I and our greater community, the museological practices we've developed, or we're actively decolonizing museology, we haven't, and we're Haidaizing our own practices, right? So the way we do things in our museum follows the way we uh, conduct ourselves in Haida society. We're instilling our own worldviews and how things should happen. And they don't feel so foreign and militant anymore. And that's a really exciting thing all in its own way. Nika's passion for her work is infectious. And it's so visible when she talks about all of the work her museum is involved with. Okay, let me, okay, I want to tell you about our friggin' departments because this is <laughs> the best thing ever because we are a Haida museum, Haida led. I mean, we don't ever leave our Canadian neighbors behind. We, like my father said to me, why would we do to others what was done to us, right? And we do things that our community needs. The museum not only does all of the traditional kinds of museum programming and education, but they're involved in a host of other projects. Everything from language mentorship to an iPads for Elders program, which was created during the pandemic to help get elders iPads and internet access to keep them safe and connected. The Haida Gwaii Museum was founded on this kind of dedication to serving the needs of their community. It is through decades of work by the Haida Repatriation Committee that many of the treasures that fill the rooms of the museum were returned home. Well, the museum was founded on repatriation, right? Uh, You've got over 90% of our people dying through genocides. Uh, You've got over 90% of our belongings leaving as well, our own relatives, right? So... Repatriation, we call it Yahkudangang, to pay respect. We had to uh, have a formal letter of authorization from our, our nation, from hereditary and elected leaders, saying that we're mandated to do this work. And within that mandate is where we're mandated not just to research and bring home our ancestors, our relatives, and our belongings. We're mandated to do this work Uh, by building relationships with mainstream museums and universities. And we undertake this work with the absolute goal of mutual respect, cooperation, and trust. Nika's work with the Repatriation Committee has taken her around the world. And she described to us the kind of learning she herself has done as she has come into contact with Haida belongings and ancestors. And then I was working in New York and found two masks there. Uh, one documented, they're human masks, like human portrait masks. But one is um, documented as being Raven in human form, presenting as male. The mask opens and Raven is presenting themselves as their female self, right? And there's another mask in the same format, which is a human male self that opens to present their female self. I had to start researching all this. You know, that that has really changed a lot in me. Growing up, always hear Raven being referred to as he, um, knowing that there's not a heck of a lot of um, materials to go on or, or contemporary um, rememberings because that colonial force was homophobic and transphobic. 
but being able to find little bits of information and then researching beyond that and learning that it appears a lot, if not most Indigenous communities had more than two genders before. Now, here's the kicker. This was the big eye-opener. With someone else's research, I realized that is where gender became compartmentalized, was during the genocides as well. Because the church comes after the smallpox, and the church only has he or she. And then the Indian Act comes along and only has he or she. And residential school comes along and only has he or she. So the whole thing about the Canadian project, their ultimate goal was to kill identity. So you look at the different mechanisms Canada used to fracture and try and kill our identity. You have first biological genocide. You have the Indian Act making us wards of the state and removing us from our lands and you have the residential school, you have the 60s scoop, which actually happened, started in the late 50s and still occurs today. All of these things absolutely tactically developed to annihilate any sense of self. And they did it with gender too. And if you think, you think of yourself and who you are and where does it start, your absolute essence of being even before your culture and they tried to destroy that too and they did a good job but they didn't succeed and that is what brings us back to Yakudangang Saslindanai the council of the Haida nation and every other thing our nation does to put ourselves back together and not only put ourselves back together, but not leave Canadians behind in the process. I think this preservation of the past, the Saving Things House, yes, it's about the past, but it's equally about the future, right? It's equally about transmitting and preserving and honoring those generations to come in the recognition that, I guess, they can't be fully Haida unless they know where they came from and, and who they are uh, in order to continue being Haida, right? Yeah, and, and oh, I'm just, I just love the way you frame that. But I'm going to say that it is a moral responsibility for all of us. You know, people, it's a moral responsibility to find out the truth. Because like my auntie Guaganut says, now that you know, there's no excuse. And there is enough out in the world, if nothing else, our children um, and the knowledge of what happened to them. There's no excuse not to educate yourselves. I like, I like again, how my auntie Guaganot explained it to me. She goes, yeah, well, you know, we have laws. There are things we're not supposed to do, but what we really like are our values because values are things you strive for always, right? It's a goal and, and values, even that word in English, I don't know how we would frame it in Haida, honestly, but um, Haida ways of being, that's how we would say it, Haida ways of being, in and of itself acknowledges humanness, right? So we're striving for yakudang to be respectful. We're striving to gain consent, 
to remember always to ask first. We're striving for reciprocity, for balance, to seek wise counsel, to listen so hard you can hear, you know, all these beautiful values. And within those values, and I could go on and on with those values, there's one called Tulyada or Tulyada. And Tulyada, as I've been taught, means like many of our words can have different meanings. Mm. It's how you use them in a sentence or context. Tulyada means to tell the truth. Tulyada has been likened to law. And Tulyada also means make things right. So when you do misstep by mistake or on purpose, we have this incredible mechanism of being able to make things right. And that requires you being true to yourself and acknowledging the missteps you've made and being able to state them and make things right. So these values, you know, in, in this day and age, we all have to codify things and put them on paper and have processes and policies and things like that. If you just write those words down as your guide and you bounce what you're doing off these 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 ways of being, you've got your strategic plan, <laughs> you know? When Jalan and Gwai set out to recreate the Great Box, they had a very specific goal in mind for the child of the Great Box. Any museum, right? If you go in and hide a collection and you're just sort of overwhelmed by all these pieces and you can study them and everything. But what's missing is that they've been taken out of, out of use and out of uh, context. They're not being used for performance or used for you know, the proper things. And so they sort of sit there sterile almost. And so that was also one of our, our goals was, you know, we knew the day's climate, there's no chance of having that box returned to us at the time. But um, but what we could do is we could create uh, a box in its likeness to be used for, for ceremony and, you know, brought out at Palaches and, you know, holding our treasures and, and you know, moving things uh, forward in, in that way. The brothers worked on recreating the box for a month, carving in 12-hour shifts. At the end of the 30 days, the nearly completed child of the great box was shipped back to Haida Gwaii. Within days of its arrival, it was in a classroom at the Old Masset High School, already helping the next generation. So that was like an initial vow that we made was was that this was a you know not a box just to be put under glass that we put it to use and uh you know and it has it's had a song put into it by by Bo we've had it out at our our father's potlatch and uh and you know we've been building a collection of of masks and regalia to to be housed in it in time the child of the great box is an example of of us repopulating our world you know um with with Haida art but what else it does is 
it you know puts up Haida art in the community. It's really like rewarding for us to be able to do these projects and you know make masks for dancing and there's so many people doing it now you know there are a lot of artists that are working in the community and that are keeping the songs alive and vital and uh, our chiefs are doing their work and throwing potlatches and, and, and things so you know the dream is that we have what our ancestors had that that you know people can look around and see the art uh, as an everyday part of their lives and I, to some extent we're already there but uh, we want more i mean we all live on this planet together and we all live in different ways of knowing and different epistemologies it's about creating a space where you can actually maybe see yourself from somebody else's perspective and to hope that, you know, that fosters greater understanding. Our museum is fully part of our culture and our ability to heal, to seek and, and attain reparation and to find ways to coexist. And coexistence is not static, but it gives this foundation of we have to live together. So we have to commit to finding ways to live together. And you can't have coexistence without reparation. And you can't have reparation without acceptance. You can't have acceptance without truth-telling. And you can't have truth-telling until you have a forum where people are willing to hear the truth. And you can't have a forum where people are willing to hear the truth until that truth is mainstream. So that's non-linear. And everything depends on everything else. This podcast was created through the direct teamwork of an incredible group of people. It was written and produced by Karina Greenwood and myself, editing and consulting by Cassidy Vilburn Baracus, mixing and mastering by Matthias Leitch, and music by myself, Rymeran. Special thanks to the University of Victoria Libraries team that assisted in countless ways on this production. Marci to our guests, Jolin Edenshaw, Gwai Edenshaw, Marenka Thompson Odlum, Heather Igloliordi, and Nika Collison. Tapoewin is made possible through the University of Victoria Strategic Framework Impact Fund and with direct support from the University of Victoria Libraries and CFUV Radio. This podcast was created in unceded Lekwungen and Wissanic territories. <laughs>